When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And so the people remained at a distance, and while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourself that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of the earth for me and sacrifice on it a burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. And wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, do not build it with dress stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, just a few of you. Pilgrim's Progress was written by a man in England who was thrown in jail who was a Christian and he was suffering for his Christian faith. And so in light of that, he was, he was endeavoring to put together a, a, an analogy of the Christian life. And if you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. Because if you've ever struggled in being a Christian, you will find in that book uh, a story, an analogy of the various ways in which we're tempted to compromise in our trust and our work in Christ and the cross. And so when you, you and I look at Pilgrim's progress, there are different levels or different testings that Pilgrim goes through on his way to becoming, uh, leaving the, the city of destruction that is going to be destroyed because of the wrath that's to come. And he's on his way to the celestial city that he's heard preached about. And he's read in a book we know to be the Bible. And as he's on his journey to this celestial city, he's met with various kinds of barriers to keeping his faith. But in particular, he was told that there was a faster way to get this to the celestial city if he just went and talked to a gentleman named Legality. Legality lived in the village of, mora of morality, and if, if he went there and he talked with Mr. Legality, he would find that he wouldn't have to go through all the other barriers that kept him or were between him and the celestial city. And so one of the things that he did was as he went there, uh, he, he was looking for that easier way to get to the celestial city, city when he came as uh, the Pilgrim's Progress tells, by the hill that he must go in order to reach this city of morality. The text reads this way, He turned out of his way to go to Mr. Mr. Legality's house for help. Behold, when he, he was now hard by the hill, it seemed so high, and also that side of it that 
that was next to the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture further lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore he, therefore he stood still and he knew not what to do. Also his burden, his sin, now seemed heavier to him than while he was on his way. And there came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. And here, therefore, he sweat and did quake for fear. I love that. I love that passage because it really speaks about the passage we read this morning from Exodus where, where God has now declared his Ten Commandments to his people. And in light of that, he has, he has given the end of the law in these last verses. And you say, well, what's the end of the law? And many of you are saying, thank God we're at the end of the Ten Commandments. Amen? Uh, let me tell you, if you thought listening to the teaching on the Ten Commandments was hard, you should have tried to preach it. Because as you study these Ten Commandments, the more you become familiar with their truths, the harder you, you find it easy to go to worship and to pray and to talk to God about anything. Because the Ten Commandments not only reveal the holiness of God, they reveal the sinfulness of your heart. And who wants to talk about how bad they are? We spend a lot of time talking about how good we are, don't we? Tell your neighbor, you're not as good as you think. You know, it's really true. When you read the Ten Commandments, the more you study them, the more you become aware of just how far short we fall from the glory that God had exhibited in creating us. And so this morning I want to talk about the end of the law. Why did God give it? What was its purpose? And in doing so, there's four themes that we'll be covering quickly. And that is first, there's a real terror when you come to the law of God. Frightfully terrifying is it to us. And if you're not quaking as you read the Ten Commandments, you're dead. You don't think it applies to you. You're spiritually blinded by sin. I believe that's one reason why in our culture we have seen in the last 20 years attempts to remove the Ten Commandments from the public forum. Because if people took them seriously and looked at them, we would not have the politics or the economics that we have today. The second thing I want to talk to you about is the need of a mediator because that's what the law really does. It shows a need of a mediator that we must have. Thirdly, there are limitations to the law of God. In other words, though the law is holy and right and true, there are certain things the law can't do for you. And finally, there is a better mediator that God has a has approved on your behalf, that God has sent into the world so that through him... As you read the Ten Commandments and know the depth of your heart and your sin, that you can find relief and even salvation for your soul. And so in light of that, let's go back to the first one, this, the, 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 the terrifying truth of the law of God. And, and as you think of the law of God, you will notice that after God spoke these words, God spoke these words, the Israelites trembled. I don't know about you, I can't think of the last time I trembled. It might have been one time when I was hunting and we were late in the evening and we had been looking for game that we had wounded hoping to find it and we got turned around and lost in the pitch darkness of night. 
There was not a light to be seen or a path to be followed to get out of where we were. And I really began to panic. I don't suffer panic attacks, but I did that night, let me tell you. I called my brother on the phone and I had one bar on my cell phone and I just said, help. And he kept saying, what? And I kept saying, help. And he kept laughing, saying, what? I can't hear you. And the more he did it, the more I thought he's teasing the Nicky out of me. And when I get a hold of him, I'm going to kill him. I was panicking. But let me tell you, if you read the Ten Commandments and you don't panic, you're dead. You're dead to God. Because the Ten Commandments are something that really are quite amazing to listen to, to study, to hear. And here's where I want you to go with this. Please know that the Israelites were not scared of the things they saw. They were scared of the law itself. What do I mean by that? Well, when you ask the question, what were these children of Israel so terrified over when they stood before the mountain and heard God speak? Was it the thunder and lightning? Was it the trumpet that... that sounded God's presence? Was it the shaking of the ground? Could it have been that the mountain and its smoke and its great balls of fire at its peak, is that what caused the terror in their hearts? Well, that would have been terrifying. But compared to the law of God, it was tea and crumpets in the afternoon. You say, why do you say that, Robert? Surely if you stood by a mountain with fire on top of it and you saw it smoking and quaking that you would, you would back away quickly. Well, yes, I would. They did too. In fact, in Exodus 20, verse 18, they said they were so afraid that they stayed at a distance. It's kind of like having a pandemic, isn't it? They're staying at a distance from what God is doing. They're practicing a safe distance. Well, it wasn't a distance safe enough for them. When it came to the law. You see what the Israelites were really visibly seeing. Was the glory of God on that mountain. And let me tell you. It was a frightening thing. And you only see this kind of language. This kind of picture in the Bible. On a day of judgment. You see the Israelites feared the law itself. God had given his righteous requirements of them. He was demanding total allegiance in every aspect of their life in how they worshipped him and how they loved one another. God was making an absolute claim on how they worshipped, how they spent their time, how they spent their relationships, their possessions, their bodies, their speech, their desires. All of it was laid out before them. And there was no compromise. You shall not. God was giving the righteous standard that would be required of everyone to have life. One who would cross the line, anyone who would ignore the law, anyone who would break the law, they would die. God was giving the law so that they would obey him at all times and in all places. And because of that, they were frightened, frightened out of their mind. But it wasn't just the law itself, it was also the fact that God's holiness was being revealed to them. The holiness of God. 
the fire, the smoke, the lightning, the thunder, the blast of the trumpet, all of these signs really you find later in the Bible, especially in the Revelation, about the final judgment, the day that we anticipate Christ will return and then the end will come and the day of judgment will be announced. If you go back and read any of the Old Testament prophets and you read about what they say about the day of judgment, it is a day frightening for people in the earth. In Revelations, the day is so horrendous that people who don't believe in God, who've rejected God, who stand against God, cry out to the mountains that the mountains would fall on them and kill them because of the terrible pangs of that day. So the people, as they stood before God, not only feared the law, they feared the frightening holiness of God in that they saw the visible demonstration of God's holiness before the people. And they were aware of their guilt before God. And they were aware that this was a life-threatening encounter. You better be careful what you say. You ever heard that phrase? They had to be careful how they would approach God. Charles Spurgeon, one of the famous preachers of the last century, put it this way about this passage. He said, this terrible grandeur, the smoke, the mountains, the fire, all of that, this terrible grandeur may also have been intended to suggest to the people the condemning force of the law. Not with sweet sounds of harps, nor with the songs of angels was the law given, but with an awful voice from a terrible burning. By reason of man's sinfulness, the law worketh wrath. And to indicate this, it was made public by, by the accompaniment of fear and death. The battalions of omnipotence marshaled upon the scene the dreaded artillery of God with awful salvos, adding emphasis to every syllable. The trem tremendous scene at Sinai was also, in some respects, a prophecy, if not a rehearsal, of the day of judgment. No wonder the Israelites were terrified. They were confronted with the condemning power of the law-giving God who would judge the world on the last day. Do you know that's going to happen? That is the wrath that is being revealed. If you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is being revealed even now. In fact, our nation is under the wrath of God. How do we know that? Because people know there is a God, but instead of loving and worshiping and seeking Him, they turn away from Him and make idols out of all kinds of things. And we dare think that God will not judge with His wrath. It's frightening, isn't it? You say, Robert, surely there must be some kind of good news. Surely there must be some sucker of comfort for us. Well, there is. It was in the form of Moses. It's for that reason that God provided for them a mediator. That God provided Moses. You say, well, who was Moses? Well, he was the one that God, remember, called called to be his spokesman to his people, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You see, the Israelites were afraid to deal with God directly when they saw God's holiness. They knew that if they stood before him, they would be in danger of losing their life. In fact, that presence of God was so prevalent throughout the Old Testament teaching that in the days the temple was finally built, one day out of the entire year, they would send a 
a priest chosen by lots to go into the holiest of holies where God's presence resided. The Ark of the Covenant that contained the, the law and the manna and the other articles of, of what God had done in the history of Israel all were contained in this place and God's holiness would come and reside in such a way that people knew they better be very careful how they approach that inner room of sanctuary. And so as the, the chosen priest would go in, they would tie a rope at his ankle just in case if he did something that displeased God and was going to drop dead in front of the presence of God because of his sins, they would be able to get the body out. They didn't want to go in that room. Kind of reminds me of a song by Bill, is it Jim Croce? You don't mess with who? Jim. You don't pull on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. Well, Interestingly enough, when God supplied Moses, he supplied that way of relief so that they could understand the purpose, the end of the law. You see, the end of the law is a very powerful thing. They said to Moses, as they said, listen, we want you to be our legal advocate. We want you to be our mediator. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, let's face it. When you get in a wreck, when you get in trouble, who are you going to call? You call a lawyer, don't you? This is not a lawyer joke, so don't worry. But when you get into trouble with the law, don't you find someone who can help you? You need an advocate, a mediator. Well, in Exodus 20, 19, they tell Moses, they say, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. In other words, we don't want to come directly in God's presence. We want you to tell us what God has said. Do not have God speak to us or we'll die. Kind of makes you step back just a moment, doesn't it? I can think of times in my life when I have wanted the unmediated experience of God's presence, when I wanted to stand before the God who is holy and just and loving and enjoy His presence and, and relish the blessing of Him who gives me life. Some people say, well, if God would only speak to me directly or if I would... would if he would only show himself to me, then I would believe in him. Or more importantly, if God would just show me the map of my life, then I would be happy. They have no idea what they're asking. A glimpse of God's true glory would fill you with such fear that you would lose all bodily function because he is holy and righteous and true and pure. And sinless, and we are not. He is an awesome and all-powerful God, and His holiness is so great that sin cannot tolerate its presence and will perish before it. And in fact, that's what the Judgment Day speaks of, when God will put down all enemies to His throne, including death, will have its final defeat. You say, well, then... Why a mediator? Well, obviously, isn't it? it? We need someone to stand between us. A mediator is someone who stands in the gap between two parties, someone who is between heaven and earth, someone to bridge that gap between God and us because we know we can't. All the religions of the world are attempting to do just that, to bridge that gap, but they fail, utterly fail in all of their endeavors because God is holy and just and right and true and pure. 
We need someone. Someone to be God's spokesman so that we can hear his word. For to hear the sound of his voice would call us, us to quake as well. We need someone to protect us from God's curse against sin. We need someone who would take away the penalty of the law. And Moses was the one that God had provided, a, a foretaste of the mediator that God would eventually send. This Moses who was called at the burning bush. This Moses who was told to speak for God and then said, I don't have the words. I can't speak. And then God said, fine, take Aaron. You tell Aaron what to say and, and I'll tell you what to say. And then we'll deliver the message together. You see, God would not even allow Moses, a poor speaker, to be excused from his call to be God's mediator. Why would he do that? Well, interestingly enough, God chose Moses because he was to do two things. He was first to speak for or to them, to them, or to them for God. In other words, he was to deliver the message that God had spoke. And in such a way, in verse 20, they said, he said to them, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come to test you. Notice this, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Don't you love that? We got it backwards, don't we? We think God is so loving, he, he invites us to go out and sin. He's just going to forgive every sin we ever do. I remember distinctly I was talking with a young woman decades ago who had cheated on her husband and slept with the next door neighbor after he had married her after falling in love with her after she was already pregnant with another man's child and both had come to Christ and so as she was studying the gospel and thinking about the forgiveness of God and noticing her neighbor she she looked at him with great reverence and delight Forgetting the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. It was years later when I was able to see her and talk with her that I said, what was going through your mind? And she said, oh, I just knew that God would forgive me. Really? This morning as we were reading the Westminster questions, there was a Question, are all sins equally grievous before God? And the answer was no. There are some sins that are worse than others. One example is what happened with Ravi Zacharias, a man who has preached around the world and talked to people about Jesus Christ and the need of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. While in his own background, he was unaccountable to anyone and he was actually in many affairs in three massage parlors that he owned. You don't think that hurt the message of the gospel? Or has caused some Christians to doubt their faith? We need a mediator who can not only just help us understand God's law. We need a mediator who can speak to us for God. God's law, the end of the law, is for this purpose. It was given so that we might restrain sin in our lives by threatening us with punishment. But secondly, it was given to reveal the sin that is by proving that we cannot live up to God's perfect standard. 
Exodus 20, 28 says, God has come to test you. Why does God test us? He doesn't test us for his sake. He does for yours. By reading the Ten Commandments, you, you find out where it is that you are easily led astray from God's purpose and plan for your life. And to think the Israelites were happy about that? I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really like people coming into my life telling me that I'm wrong. Do you? You're wrong. Man, I tell you what, I'll put on my boxing gloves and box their ears, won't you? Well, that's the effect the commandment has upon us outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. But that third use of the law is only for those who are born of God. You see, if you're not a Christian this morning and you read the Ten Commandments, you're going to get angry. You're going to get really angry at God because you feel that God is cheating you of something. He's putting unfair limits on your life. And yet the third use of the law is for those who have come to know this grace of Christ. It is to show us how to live in a way that brings glory to God. It instructs us in how to live a good, righteous life as we battle with our sinful nature. It is a way in which God uses the law in the most expedient way of bringing us to that one mediator that he has sent. You see, the law was given for our us to obey it was given for us to have a mediator to help us in pursuing its righteousness but Moses was not just going to be a spokesman to them for God Moses went for them to God in Exodus 20 21 it says the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I thought that was such an interesting phrase, don't you? The thick darkness. We, we hear that God is light, and yet the scriptures also speak about God being in darkness. Well, what is that about? Well, remember when Jesus was on the cross? Where was God? It says that in the third hour that darkness came upon the face of the ground and that everything became pitch black. What was that? What was going on? It was God's presence in judgment against sin. And so as the, the wrath of God was laid upon Christ for us and for our sins, the, the literal creation showed and displayed the holiness of God and that this God who cannot be seen or known apart from those who are holy. As Logan opened our, our message or this, this ser uh, service this morning, who can ascend to God's holy hill? Only those who are righteous and pure in heart. Who can do this? this? This darkness is that we don't understand this part of God because we're not that way. We're not, we're not those kind of people who are righteous and holy. And that's what the law reveals. And that, more importantly than anything else, is the reason why we need a mediator. But the real question is, well, why can't the law? Why can't I just obey the law? Why can't I just say, all right, I'll just do what the law says? Well, let me ask, ask you this question. If simply hearing the law was such a frightening experience for the people who were there, then how terrifying will it be to meet the God after breaking it?
David Benard, one of the uh, missionaries who reached out into the Indians, the American Indians, as the gospel was being spread across the Americas, he wrote this about the law of God. He said, I found that it was impossible for me after my uttermost pains to answer its demands. I often made a new resolution and often broke them. I imputed the whole carelessness and and." I think I have this on, there it is. I, I, it has a, let me read it again for you. I found it was impossible for me after my ut, uttermost pains to answer its demands. I often made a new resolutions as, as, often it broke, as often broke them. I imputed the whole to carelessness and the want of being more watchful and used to call myself a fool for my negligence. But when upon a stronger resolution and greater endeavor and close application to fasting and prayer, I found all attempts fail. Then I quarreled with the law of God as unreasonably rigid. I thought, it would, I thought if it extended only to my outward actions and behaviors, I could bear with it. But I found it condemned me for all my evil thoughts and sins of my years, which I could not possibly prevent." You know, that's really where the, the power of the law begins. It begins to reveal things about us we don't want to hear. For instance, in Romans, Paul, Paul writes and says, no one, will be able, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Or in another place, in James, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just this one point is guilty of breaking it all. You say, well, good Lord. How in the world, how in the world can we find any succor, any comfort in the law? Well, it's simply this, my friends, that God's law leads us to the gospel. Amen. When you come to the quandary we face as we stand before a holy God, the only hope we have is what God has given as a mediator. The law condemns us for our sins. It says, do not and do and we, we, by nature, reject that. In fact, when, when we hear that law, the turmoil that comes in our hearts, we begin to look for some kind of legal remedy. Do you know that the Jews were really good at that? When the law said, you shall keep the Sabbath day, the, the interpretation of what that meant caused them such consternation. They said they wanted to fulfill the law. So what they did is they said, okay, you can only travel on Sunday a mile. If you travel a mile and one-tenth, it's work. But the problem was for some of the Jews that maybe their family lived maybe two miles away from them. So the way they got around the law, you know what they did? They, they took a chair from their house the day before the Sabbath and they put it one mile of distance from their house so that they could walk that one mile and sit down and they were technically still sitting on their own furniture so then they could walk one more mile and not break the, the commandment. We do that too, don't we? The most amazing thing, you and, I, you and I begin to deal with this law, it becomes such a, an inward turmoil. And, and as Slocum was talking earlier, we, we started talking about how uh, I'm really glad you're preaching on that. And he'd say, yeah, I'm glad you're preaching on that one too. 
Why do we feel that way? Because as we were studying the law, we became very aware of our need of Christ. That's the end of the law. You see, the reason we need a mediator and why God has sent Jesus Christ is that Jesus does for us what the law can't do. Jesus accomplishes for us what we cannot in our own endeavor even possibly want to accomplish through the law. You see, it is only Jesus that can save us. For what the law was powerless to do, Paul writes in Romans 8, 3, what the law was powerless to do and that was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his Son. And the Son of God is the only mediator we will ever need. How do I know that? Well, if you go to the first letter of Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5, it goes on to say, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men and women, and the testimony given in its proper time. And if you really want to study this, you really want to dig into it, turn to the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, you find over and over again how Moses was a great mediator appointed by God. And even to this day, the Jews hold him as the lawgiver, Moses, the great man of faith. And you read in the book of Hebrews how Hebrews says, oh, but Jesus is so superior superior to, to this mediator of Moses. Why? Because he gave himself in a new and better covenant. In Hebrews 12, 23 and 24, it says, for Jesus says to the Father, you have come to Jesus, or at least they write to the Christians about Jesus, that you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. What new covenant? That if we will look at the law and understand God's holiness and our sinfulness and confess these things to God, and repent of our sins and believe in what God did by pouring out his wrath upon the Son that we can be forgiven and adopted and freed from the penalty of sin. There used to be a joke about people who would put Jesus is the answer on a bumper sticker on the back of their, their car. And some skeptic made a lot of money by printing another bumper sticker that said, what was the question? Let me tell you, the question is, are you going to be able to stand before a holy God? The law says no. You will perish if it wasn't for Jesus. You see, Jesus did everything as your mediator. He goes to the Father on your behalf. Even right now, he is praying for you at this very moment. That he is the go-between, the one who can approach this darkness of God that we cannot see or understand. He enters into that place for us. He is able to do so much more effectively than Moses did ever because he is both God and man. He is the perfect person to be your mediator. He was both divinely divine and human at the same time and he is uniquely capable of representing you before God the Father who loves you and desires to forgive you and cleanse you and make you his. Jesus, 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 what a name, what a savior, 
the one who approaches God on our behalf and does something Moses could never do. He offers his perfect obedience to the Father on your behalf so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ clothing you completely. Jesus is not only one who is the the wonderful mediator and does everything that Moses can't do. Jesus is that Jesus is that one that teaches us God's law. Now this is powerful. Can you can you hold on? I know it's hot in here. Can you hold on? When you go to chapter 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew Jesus lays out what we call the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And he says, when you look at that law and you become poor in spirit, it is then you will find comfort. And then he goes on after that Beatitude and he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. What is he doing? He's teaching us the law. You see, the the joy of knowing Christ is knowing that our sins are forgiven through his sacrifice on the cross. But even more, now that Christ lives in your heart, he is the one who guides you in understanding this law in such ways that you begin to learn how to love God and your neighbor. It is through that great power of the Holy Spirit that God transforms our hearts so that we begin to yearn for righteousness and holiness. It is by that great power of God, it work in you to conform you to Christ's image. And in that way, God does a great work continually, not just the day you receive Christ, but every day that you turn to him, he is conforming you to the will of God. Why does he do that? Because that was the purpose of the law. Jesus finally said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Isn't that glorious? Would you believe there was a time in my life when I didn't want to keep his commandments? I wanted no part of him. But now I do. Why? Because the law did its job of showing me my sin and God's holiness. And that's when I fell in love with Jesus. Because he loved me so much, he went to the cross on my behalf, paid my penalty, and on the third day God raised him from the dead so that I might have a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness given by faith in him who loved me. Glorious, isn't it? You say, okay, well, Robert, if that's the truth, if that's the Scripture's teaching about the law, that it shows me my sin and how I should love God and grow in this, how do I do that? Well, fortunately, we're going to be starting a series next week on Ephesians, and it talks about this. In fact, the whole three chapters talk about that whole business of what Christ has done for you in delivering you from the curse of the law, which is that you could never keep it, never obey it, never save yourself by its precepts, that only through Christ are you forgiven and find peace with God. 
And we're going to see through that whole letter the transforming nature of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, my friends, the law of God is holy and it's right and it's true and it's pure. And as a Christian, it is worthy, worthy of your attention so that God might transform you into the person he ultimately will create at the final day of judgment. Do you hear this? That day of judgment won't be a dime for fearing. We won't be, have to be afraid. That day of judgment that comes where God will judge every man and woman based on this law, we will not have to fear. Why? Because we know the one who took upon himself the wrath that we would have received and has now delivered us to the Father as his children. Let me tell you how it begins. Paul writing in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. He predestined us in accordance with the pleasure of his will to be adopted into his family. I can't wait. Let's pray. As we come off of this season of Easter and we begin to think deeply of the work of Christ, we know that that work is continuous even now. There are some in the sound of my voice who are in the midst of sin. They know what the law has said and they know they're far from your hand, O oh God. And I pray for them that the Holy Spirit would bring such powerful conviction of your love and your grace that they will turn from their sin. And be freed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so in light of your great holiness and mercy. Father. This past week I read of a man who. Thought himself to be a friend of a grizzly bear. A pack of grizzly bears. And he was so convinced that the grizzly bears were, were friends. That he and his wife went out and literally spent six months living among these grizzlies. Naming them, calling them by name, befriending them. But as the summer fell short and the days began to shorten and fall turned into winter, the bears were not their friends. These people who thought of the grizzly bear as some teddy bear to cuddle ended up having them for lunch. I, I think about God, our relationship with you. We talk about Jesus being our friend, our savior, our lover of our souls. He is also the lion of Judah. 
He is the Lord, the God of all creation. And to fear him is not to be afraid of him. It is to take seriously his words. To put them into our lives, praying that we would be conformed to his image, lest we too perish. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ and the willingness he gave to free us from the dominion of sin. Now, God, help us to walk in that freedom. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together,